You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I am Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my talented podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. All right, folks. Today, I'm excited because we're talking about a new book release, The Power of Value Selling, the gold standard to drive revenue and create customers for life. And to help us talk about this topic today, we have the author herself, Julie Thomas, President and CEO of Value Selling Associates Incorporated. Julie is responsible for the company's global expansion, its position as a market leader in the on-demand, instructor-led, virtual instructor-led, and hybrid blended learning solutions that is delivered throughout the world in over 17 languages. In this new book, sought-after sales leader and trainer, Julie Thomas... (laughs) who's with us today, shares value-based selling techniques that help you actually buck the trend of sales reps not adding enough value to their buyers. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Awesome, Lisa and Carlos. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. In all fairness, we know Julie for quite some time, but since our audience, (laughs) some of them might not. So here's our great warm-up question to get us going, Julie. What is something that you are passionate about that those that only know you through work or business might be surprised to know? I am a sports fan. I love watching sports. My husband and I watch a lot of football, a lot of baseball. I just returned from going on one of my bucket list trips and spending a week at the French Open in Paris. and Yes. And it was fabulous. So I love watching sports. And we go to a lot of different sporting events. I also love playing games with them. Like I'm not a better like a like I don't go to the bookie type <laughs> things, but I like like the Super Bowl things and the games to kind of get you get you engaged and curious about outcomes for games that I might not necessarily care about. Like the fantasy football thing, right? Or no? Well, I don't have the patience for that. But like, <laughs> okay. I do Fair. like I do like other games. Like we have a game that we suicide pool, like in football. Oh, yeah. Which, if you've never done that, you have to pick one winner a week. Which sounds like it wouldn't be hard, but last year I think fifty percent of the pool was out in week one. Like, <sighs> so wow. it's really hard. So, and on any given Sunday, there could be an upset. So. I like those types of games. Amazing. So leading into that, tell us a little bit about Julie and how you ended up here because Carlos and I know your story, but our listeners don't always know. So please tell us, like, how did you end up here? It's kind of an interesting story and it is a fun story. So years ago, I was promoted into a sales executive and I was a junior sales executive working for a company. The company was called Gartner Group at the time. It's now Gartner. And I was one of the only sales reps in the company that hadn't come with previous sales experience. I had started in a sport role and I just started lobbying the VP of sales. Like, I can do this. I could be in sales. I know I can. Ultimately, he gave me the shot. I was promoted into sales and they actually sent me to go find a couple sales classes. So I 
went to, I think, the Yellow Pages at the time and found a couple classes and did a couple programs. And they didn't really resonate me. Four days learning how to sell a pencil when I had to come back and call on a CIO to sell them some advisory services, just I was not smart enough to translate the application to what I what I had to do. So fast forward a couple of years later, our company had grown and they brought in the founder of Value Selling to train us. And it was awesome. And it really fueled my career. It was the first methodology that I'd ever really kind of embraced and within three years, I was a vice president of sales, leading a team in North America, and then ultimately rolled into what would now be an enablement role. But I was reporting to the GVP of global sales, and I was running all of the onboarding, training, readiness for salespeople. So I became Value Selling's client and also became the founder's good friend. And we were neighbors and all of that stuff. So when it came time for him to retire, he approached me and I was looking for a change. And we put together a plan and 20 years ago, he retired and I took over the company that he started to build. And we've been on this journey ever since. He was my coach, my mentor, and at times my therapist through that process. But 20 years working with a number of professionals, just like the two of you, has been a ton of fun. It's amazing. And I just want to mention this because I do think it's really important in today's climate. Julie is the CEO of a company that is now, what, 90% female-led? On my executive team, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 80%. Yeah. 80%, 80%. female-led okay. of my direct reports. And in our space, probably the only female CEO in our space, if you look at the companies that we're often compared to by Gartner's or Forrester Decisions or any of those, I'm fairly certain we're the only female-led firm. So I am proud of that. I am very proud to be a part of a team that has that. So thank you, Julie, for doing that. Thanks. It's fun. I think it's awesome. All right. Before we jump in the book, I think it's only fair for our audience to realize that both Lisa and I use this value-selling programs in our consulting practices with organizations around the globe. It had not only helped me when I was in sales and a sales leader, it allowed me to build a business and ultimately feed my family. And to say the least, I am thankful for Julie and Value Selling and a huge fan. Julie, also before we jump in the book, maybe it'd be fair for everyone to kind of go, what is this value selling framework and programs that you offer that are really the sales approach behind the book? Well, and and you just said it very well, it is an approach. So the value selling framework is a sales methodology. And all we mean by that is it's a way to engage customers and prospects that focuses the conversation on value, not just price. And in today's world where so many firms lead with products, They assume the customer will have enough information to build the case to make the investment. And my experience is, and I think the two of you will likely agree with me, most customers won't do that work if we don't help them do that. We have an approach and it includes a skill set. It includes a tool set and it often develops a mindset of how you engage prospects differently to ha- have conversations about them, not just push my product 
in order to understand how the customer at the end of the day is going to answer the question, can I justify this decision? Is there enough return, however I measure that return, that I can stand up in front of my boss or his boss or her boss and say, this is worth it because. And we help them figure that out. Amazing. As all of us know, again, but our audience does not necessarily, you have a previous book called Value Selling, Driving Sales Up One Conversation at a Time. What prompted you to get started with the power of value selling after having released that first very successful book? As I mentioned, I took over the leadership role at Value Selling Associates in 2003. And in 2006, I self-published a book called Value Selling, Driving Up Sales, One Conversation at a Time. And I never really thought of myself as an author. However, in the consulting world and in the training world, a book provides a certain level of credibility. So I jumped on the bandwagon and did it. And then starting about probably eight or nine years ago, everybody started, a lot of people around me, including clients, said, well, what's next? What's new? What's changed? We still have clients buying that book in pretty good numbers, the 2006 book. But it, especially in light of probably, let's say, the last four years, five years in the amount of digital transformation that's taken place for obvious reasons in virtually every industry, it seemed appropriate to take a look at our approach in the context of this new world we live in and test, is it relevant? How does it stand up? And how has it changed and evolved in light of the world that we operate in? And that's really what drove the power of value selling. And the title is the first thing that I think shows what's changed. Creating customers for life, we have come into a world where almost doesn't matter what you sell, everybody's trying to figure out how to, as a service it, and create longer-term relationships, strategic relationships, and get away from the single transaction. And that's the first thing I think we address in the book is how does this apply to the entire revenue engine, not just new customer acquisition? I love that. You just alluded to it a little bit, but in the book, you also point out that the technology, like, I, and I feel like it's happening every single day, but sales tech has exploded, made salespeople more efficient, but not necessarily more effective. When you think about like the four negative effects of sales efficiency, what does that mean for the audience? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Number one, Sales tech has got a great role and it does a lot for the salespeople. It takes a lot of stuff off their plate that they didn't want to do anyways. So it is good. Sales tech has become less a tool and more a teammate to do the things that salespeople don't want to do. It helps you automate mundane tasks. It gives you insight. Research has completely changed because of sales tech. You can amplify your message and get to more people with outreach than you can when you're you know, dialing for dollars. So all of that is goodness. However, sales tech can't fix bad communication. Sales tech can't fix a conversation that goes sideways between you and I 
And I don't have enough insight to recognize that and pivot in the conversation, or I'm not listening to you and you get sick and tired and you will probably be very polite and then never return another one of my calls again or block my emails or what have you. So sales tech only gets you so far. I was speaking with someone yesterday who said, you know what, when you get new medicine, you also get a long list of declaimers of those possible side effects. Well, there is a long list of possible side effects for sales reps that come with technology. And one of them is, I no longer have to talk to as many people or I don't need to be an effective communicator. I can just automate everything or I don't need to pick up the phone and actually have a conversation. I can text and LinkedIn my way to this opportunity. And it's a big old fat lie that a lot of people are telling themselves. So true. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So Julie, we had Andy Paul on our podcast recently and he talks about the importance of win rates. And he said that one of the most important things that affect the win rate is the how you sell it. And in your book, you talk about the importance of how you sell it is just as important as what you sell. Can you give me some examples or discuss the impacts of that on salespeople today? So the buyers that we're trying to sell to are very busy people and they don't have the patience or the tolerance to have their time wasted. So if you look at at some of the statistics from a company like Gartner, who says almost 80% of buyers say they prefer to not have a rep involved in the sales cycle. The downside of that, that same 80%, half of them say that when they don't talk to a sales rep, their buyer remorse goes up. So the sales rep has a role, but we just can't waste their time. So one of the things that's impacting win rates specifically is sales reps chasing unwinnable deals. So one of the big premises of the value selling framework and one of the benefits of the tool set that we bring and that the two of you teach your clients how to optimize is we're not going to win them all. We'd love to, but the reality is we're not. But when we're not going to win, let's look at that earlier and find a way to nurture that, but not dominate our time and certainly not put it on our forecast. And so I think part of the key to a win rate is a pipeline of good, winnable, we call them qualified opportunities and getting rid of all the garbage that distorts our data, but gives the sales rep a full sense of security because they got a fat pipeline and they're busy, but they're not making any forward progress. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm just digesting that for a second, but also thinking about how you were saying like buyers get impatient. Buyers want a frictionless process. Yet, what is making this buyer process so complex? Is it us as sellers or is it the buyers themselves? Like I wonder here, have we trained buyers to expect a complex sales process? And maybe, but I don't think selling is complex. So I'll be contrarian there. I think buying is complex. So the complexity to the sales rep is there's a multitude of people that you've got to gain access to in order to influence them and build consensus across a team of buyers. And the buying team is often dysfunctional. And the buying team 
often has people with competing desires or preferences, and that all has to be sorted out. The act of selling itself, I honestly don't think is complex. It's marshalling the buyer in understanding their buying process. And they're building more and more complexity into it in order to mitigate their risk that an errant, very charismatic sales rep can convince somebody to do something they really shouldn't do, which I honestly don't think happens that often, but it has happened in the past. So they build more people in, they build more controls in. The other thing that I think is really changed, and I'm sure the two of you and many of the listeners have experienced it, this situation as well. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago, procurement had a role in a big purchase. The business decisions made the decision, then they shot it over the transom and procurement negotiated the deal. They were brought in at the end after the decision was made and we were all taught, hey, if you get plugged up there, you go back to your business decision and make him put the hammer down and free up the um, resources or whatever. Procurement's in earlier and earlier. And it's their job to level the playing field and minimize the impact of the human factors in decision-making. And that's a challenge because buying is a human process. And we believe, and I see it day in and day out, people do make emotional buying decisions for logical reasons. If only data convinced us to do things, Weight Watchers would be out of business. (laughs) It doesn't work that way, right? There's all kinds of other factors. So it's this conundrum that the buyer is creating. We have to manage it. We can't change it. We can't tell them, no, I'm not going to talk to this person. But that's where the complexity comes in. Absolutely. And, And so because you referenced a few things in that answer, So how has that really changed over the last 20 years? Because value selling, we know, has been around for over 30 years. So how have you seen those buying complexities, that those trends kind of change? Well, I think you now have to gain the skill sets to build relationships with the procurement people. You can't ignore them. And you certainly can't avoid them. And that was our tactic early on. You might have been trained the same way and... At some point, we were like, don't call on them. They will, they will make your life <laughs> miserable. But they're beyond a necessary evil now. They hold the keys to the kingdom and sometimes they can say no early on and eliminate you from the shortlist regardless of what the business decision maker wants. So you can't ignore them. You have to be respectful for them. They care about different things than your business decision maker. And you have to build those relationships because they can make your life really sweet or really miserable. So I think that's one of the biggest changes in sales reps in many cases still don't understand that. They want to go straight to the top, straight to the C-level and think that he's going to wave his magic wand or pound his gavel and say, go do this. Companies don't behave that way anymore. You've got to build consensus. And anybody oftentimes can tank a deal regardless of their title. I was just looking at some Gartner research that talked about six to eight in a complex sales cycle of some size, six to eight buyers that you got to go through 
two to three of which you may never, ever get to talk to. So the old way of thinking of, hey, I'm going to get to this high-level person, this magical economic buyer behind the curtain. Hey, they're just one of many. (laughs) Which I think also plays to the point that your written communication and how you surround the face-to-face meetings or face-to-video meetings that you do have the luxury of having, your written communication that surrounds that is more important than ever. And it can't be a 50-page document and it can't be full of technical jargon. I hate to tell you this, our listeners, but nobody really cares what your product is. They only care how it's going to make their life (laughs) a little bit better. So how you position and how you sell, I think, you know, that's the full circle. It's not just the meanings. It's how do you follow up on that? How do you respond to that? How do you sell when you're not there? Because the second you've hung up that Zoom call, they've moved into another meeting and they forgot everything that they just promised you they would do. It's all communication. Kind of leads me right into my next question, which is today in the grips of a tough economic times, I see a lot of organizations that are pivoting, if you will, from this revenue at all costs type of mentality to, oh no, we're more of a lower cost product-led growth model. You know, we built it, people came to, oh no, we finally realized the customer is important and we need to change to this customer-led focus. This has become, you know, more, I see it more and more organizations and they're, you know, knocking on our doors, especially when they see those customers that they thought were happy starting to churn away and not be able to justify the renewal. As you worked on the book, you know, did you see something similar? Because I think it talks to exactly the back end of that title. No, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it, especially in tech, but you have a lot of companies that have got a bright, shiny object. They got the new, fun, sexy UI, really cool, great interface, integrates to this, integrates to that, does everything but, you know, make you a cup of coffee. And it's a great tool. And there's a subset of the market that will will jump on that. And, you know, they're the pioneers, they're the innovators, whatever you call them. There's a subset of that. And they're easy because they're pioneers in everything that they do. And then that easy business is gone. And now you're competing to solve different problems or you're competing to displace something that's already there or... If somebody else figured out that you built this really cool mousetrap, wait a second, what if I change the color to green and I offer the same mousetrap? All of a sudden, new competitors come in. So the easy business is gone. And I think that's what a lot of these tech companies are experiencing. They're sales reps. And I don't mean to be degenerative or insulting to any of them, but many of them were answering the phone, issuing quotes. I mean, how would you have loved, I would have loved to have been a Zoom rep in March of 2020. I would have been a stud. Everybody was a stud, right? And I mean, they didn't have to sell. So now the order taking part of their evolution is over. They have to go out and make, create demand and manage opportunities and fight for capital and build the case and identify the buyers. And I'm sure there will be some other cycles of new technology that will ride that early pioneer wave, but that easy business doesn't last forever. It never does. 
So agree. It's funny, as you talked about, it's not the product. This is a total side note. But uh, one of my good friends and a neighbor is a liquor distributor. And he was talking about how this certain brand of Prosecco is killing it. And my other neighbor goes, is it a better quality? Is it the reserves? I mean, I mean, is it the grapes? It's the blue label. I go, what? He goes, it's mostly bought by females. They see the pretty light blue label and it is flying off the shelf. Their bottle presentation is stands out versus everything else on the shelf. I know we're not talking about selling liquor on this podcast, but it goes to the point about sometimes, you know, it's not the product itself at the end of the day that people buy. It's really that whole experience that they're looking for. You know, it's such a great point, Carlos, because one of the things that we often work with clients on, the whole concept of value selling and uncovering the value of what you bring to the table for your customers and your prospects. We want differentiated value. All of our customers have options, right? And so it's that differentiated value that we try to help them uncover, especially if it's a head-to-head or it's not a brand new paradigm and there's existing other, there's other options in the marketplace. And for most of us, there's other options in the marketplace. And the key to that differentiation is thinking outside of capabilities. Because the capabilities, even if you've got the better functionality here, they'll leapfrog you in three months and then you'll leapfrog them in three months. Capabilities aren't static. So it's the other things that we also teach them to differentiate. And customer experience is huge right now. Am I easy to work with? Do we make it easy for you? Will we, or it could be terms and conditions. Will we guarantee our work? Will we take it back if you're not happy? Whatever it is, those could be the deal breakers. Maybe it's the label. Maybe it's the color and the packaging. I would be shocked if somebody deliberately said, that's how we're going to sell more. I'm sure they designed an appealing label, but the unintended positive consequence was it was appealing enough that their eyes were drawn and they grabbed it. The buyer is a weird person to try to figure out, but they still are a person and we got it. They buy with emotion first every time. Yep. All right. So jumping back to a little bit more of a personal basis, Julie. What might have been one of those biggest mistakes or missteps in your career that maybe have taught you one of the most valuable lessons that really made you successful? You know, I think, and this just happened recently again, I think one of the biggest mistakes I've made over the years is I've worked with a number of people a number of times. And I have gotten lazy at doing all the things I need to do because I think that or I assume or make the come to the wrong conclusion that the relationship is enough for me to not approach this with the same rigor. I had a client tell me once as I explained this to him and he said, Julie, so what you're saying is your experience became your enemy because I thought I knew all the answers. So I stopped asking the questions. And now, even though sometimes it feels overkill, I slow down and go through it step by step. There's no shortcut to long-term success. It's a good one. Love it. Oh, and we could go on all day talking to you, Julie, of course, but let's change direction a little bit here because as you know, we ask everyone at the end of every podcast a couple of key questions. 
and one of which is near and dear to my heart. And this one is as a revenue executive, you get prospected to all the time. You send me some of the terrible ones that you get. (laughs) (laughs) And we, we laugh, snicker, and also respond and give people feedback on them. So just so you know, if you send a terrible email to Julie, we do try to help you out. But when you do see something that catches your attention from a cold prospect, there's no warm intro there. What elements does it have to have to it for you to actually like give it attention and potentially even respond? So first of all, they have to at least know who I am. I'm one of those weird people that's got a first and a last name that could be my last name, could be my first name. You would be shocked at how many messages I get that say, Dear Thomas or Mr. Thomas. So those, <laughs> like, if you can't even figure out, and I put the she, oh, she her on my LinkedIn just to clear up any confusion. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are certain things that I'm just not buying. I don't need an agency to get me 25 appointments right now. I'm not buying lists. I just discount those right out of the gates. The ones that I respond to are probably something that are already on my radar. Somebody approaches me with time in, and that's one thing we can't predict as prospects, but maybe it's something that I started to think about. Maybe it's a problem I think I need to address as we get to the next level or something that I have even maybe charged someone on my team to start to go do some research and then I'll forward that to them. But the bad ones are really, I got one the just yesterday and I haven't sent it to you, Lisa, but this is a good one. <laughs> he said, he opens up, first of all, I was pitch slapped in LinkedIn. So I connected to him on LinkedIn and he immediately came back, wanted to sell me something. And he actually started out by saying, dear Julie, I help middle-aged men with their health and their professional development. <laughs> Can we have a call? Now, Maybe he thinks my husband needs help. But I just looked at that and I said, <laughs> I just kind of, I got a little, I said, no. And then completely, yeah. I didn't, I just unconnected. Like, I don't have time for that. And people, I think you connect with people, you're introduced to somebody at a cocktail party. The first thing out of your mouth wouldn't be, let me tell you what I sell. And I don't know why people have lost their manners on LinkedIn, but they have. Great point. I just, just taught that section today for four years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, Carlos, go ahead. <laughs> no, this this week I got pitched oh, an ERP system. Twice, oh, because I might have missed the first email. <laughs> okay, I I got pitched 150 Magento developers. Go. Nice. That's what that's what I yeah. Advise. You just wonder like what have you seen on my profile that would lead you to think anyways. So I think it's some of I mean, that's the downside of automation. Some of that is just pure automation gone bad, not doing enough research, not having enough QA to look at the lists. And some of those companies might say that's okay. If I get 50% of them wrong and 50% of them right, I can live with that. But I think the long-term damage to your reputation and your credibility will catch up with you. Did you call that a link slap? Pitch slap. I got <laughs> a pitch, pitch slap. slap. Pitch. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Hey, our last question of the day, we call it Acceleration Insights. What might be that one piece of amazing advice, be it business or personal that you'd love to share with our listeners that helps them achieve amazing careers like yourself? 
the number one piece of advice, I, I'm going to give two, so I'm just going to warn you. So the number one piece of advice I would give today is just be likable. I am convinced that I advanced very rapidly in my career because people liked me. I was not a problem. I was part of a solution almost all the time. I was flexible. I didn't complain. I had questions, don't get me wrong, but I wasn't bitching and moaning in the background whenever something changed at my employer. You have a growth mindset. But the second piece of advice that I'm going to give to everybody, and it, albeit it is self-serving, is go ahead and pre-order The Power of Value Selling. If you are a revenue professional (laughs) in any role, jump on the Amazon Target. I I want to like point to something. Jump on, pick up the book. It is coming out September 20th. I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited for it to hit the ground. And I think there's something in it for everyone. And pick it up, read it, send me a LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks, Julia. That's awesome. Well, that's amazing because you kind of just answered my next question, which is if anyone is interested in learning more about you, I'm potentially hiring you to speak or talk about the book. Is LinkedIn your preferred method of communication? Absolutely. I'm not hard to find on LinkedIn. Julie A. Thomas. Also, our website is valueselling.com. You can contact us from there. You can read all about some of our programs and some fun things that we do. And if you look at my bio, all my contact information is on the website as well. So reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Perfect. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) So Julie, cannot thank you enough for your time today. We know how valuable it is. and, And thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Carlos, Lisa, you guys are a pleasure. I'm honored to be part of your conversation today. All right. Thank you. And all right, folks, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share this episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs, your coworkers. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe through YouTube, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And you can also do us a huge favor. And if you really like what you hear, throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Lisa Schneer, and I'm joined by my podcast partner in crime, always handsome, always witty, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we do nothing but wish you the best of success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.